Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. So we've just recently ticked off our 100th book that we've reviewed for the feed. Woo! <laughs> That's it. We started this podcast back in uh, June 2016 and we've done 100 books since then. And what we wanted to do today was pull out our favorite 10 lessons from those 100 books. So there's a lot of a lot and a lot of good stuff in those books. So, you know, we had a few options here. We could go really narrow and really, really deep. But yep. for this episode, we're going to go a bit wide and cover a lot of different things. And then if yeah. it's something that you personally think it's pretty cool, maybe you can just go back to the app and then and uh, have a look at it or just buy the book. Our sort of plan is um, really rough plan, not, not set in stone, but this is a very broad 10 lessons. And then we're thinking, you know what, if, if this works, if you guys enjoy it, Maybe we'll do like a business-specific episode, our best business lessons, and then maybe like a marketing-specific episode, the best marketing lessons. Mate, the first lesson that I think came up in a lot of books and I think is a pretty important lesson, a bit of a morbid one to kick it off with, but you're going to die. You're going to die sooner or later. Someday, everyone's going to get old and die. That sucks, man. I'd love to get the elixir of immortality or something, but unfortunately, it's not there. Um, you know, a book that really covers this really well, I thought, is A Life in Half a Second by Matthew Michael, which he talks about it from the perspective of Earth, right? So the Earth is billions and billions of years old, and if the Earth lived one year, if then... If you scale it down, if the Big Bang's on the 1st of January, that's like the scale, the time scale we're talking about, mm-hmm. yeah. He, he does a bit of a black magic to get to his end number of half a second, but... Oh, it's just, just a bit of simple maths, mate. Math, yeah. Black magic math, mate. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> but anyway, what he's trying to say is from the perspective of the actual cosmos or the earth, which is billions of years old, you're here for pretty much no time at all. You think 80 years can better that? You're not, not even here for half a freaking second. So, And he says the big tragedy with all this isn't that you've only got jack shit time of half a second. The tragedy is that everybody wastes it mm. doing shit that they don't want to do and don't even enjoy. Exactly, man. And they talk about... Uh, the Stoics, you know, we did the book, The Guide to the Good Life. The Stoics use this uh, realization that, you know, you're going to die and things really don't matter. And that if you think about it, you know, our little small worries of someone said something mean to me, it, it's not that important in the grand scheme of things. And realize that you're going to die, so don't let that sort of shit affect you. Mm. Something really practical would take this kind of idea into the world of the practical is Seven Habits, which, which is habit three, I think is begin with the end in mind so he kicks off the chapter with the story of thinking about your funeral right so as if you're going to die so really visualize your own death really let it sink in and then think about how from the end in mind so from the very end of your life how do you want to be remembered what do you want people to say about you what are the things that you do and with that in mind this kind of shape your values and then the actions and everyday things you do now to point in that direction of actually what you want your life to be about when you start making a bit of a game plan you know rather than thinking here's where I am now, what's the next step? Begin with the end in mind by thinking, okay, what do I want to achieve by the end? And then using that as the, the guidepost, I guess, for starting to make your plans. So, yeah, you're going to die. I think, you know, what are, what are people going to say about you at the end? That's one, you're going to die someday. The other takeaway we got, which is a bit of a nice little bridge as well, is being proactive and realizing that you have some kind of power. Yeah, you're never powerless to change your destiny. And, you know, the war of art, he says, never forget, in this very moment, we can change our lives. There never was a moment and there never will be where we are without the power to alter our destiny. So realize that you can, with 
one simple decision and one simple action change the course of your future. Mm, it's all about the decision. I love the war of art. So there's two kind of worlds. It's the, the life you got now and then the unknown life and the, your potential. And it's your decision to go from what you are now to what you could be. It's kind of the call to the, the journey or the call to action, move into the uncertainty and make your life better because it's all up to you and it's mm. your choice to be proactive. The alternative to that obviously is being reactive. So you just let shit happen to you and you're just like a, a little wimpy, little flimsy thing yeah. getting flopped around um, with the whims of life and you're not, you're not really standing for anything. Step into the unknown, mate. I also liked uh, Seven Habits. Realize that there's always a gap between stimulus and response. So whatever happens there's a gap there where you choose how you're going to respond to it. You choose that action. So he's saying that you have to be proactive. Realize there's a gap there and take response ability as in you're able to respond. So he's saying that in that gap, be proactive, choose to do the right thing uh, in, the right, in the right way at the right time and realize that you have got that power to be proactive. Yeah, you've got the choice. Just going to be conscious of it. Another thing you've got to choose, mate, our third lesson, get into the arena. Not sit on the sidelines. Mm, get into the. You're better off being in the actual arena than being on the sidelines. So when you're in the arena, you're kind of exposed and vulnerable. So you're taking the your vulnerability armor off, and all the the fuckwits in the arena might point at you and and insult you and all that because you're actually out there doing shit. You're in the arena, getting your face bloodied. You're in the thick of things, doing hard shit. Um, but you're better off doing that than being on the sidelines. No, I just thought I'd just flick to the notes here from. Uh Theodore Roosevelt's speech, Citizenship in a Republic, better known as a man in the arena. It is not the critic that counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short time and time again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive is the doer of deeds, the one who's in the arena who spends himself for a worthy cause. And if he fails, he fails daring greatly. So obviously, the dudes on the sidelines, the critics, the little wimps who aren't actually doing anything, if they're throwing um, abuse or throwing heckles at you, saying, why are you doing this? Realize that they actually don't count. The only people you should be looking to is yourself and realize that I'm in the arena. I'm doing some good shit. I'm not a little wimp on the sidelines. Mm, That's an absolute 10 out of 10 quote. So we've been saying it's kind of a choice to get in the arena. Seth Godin in Tribes, he takes it one step further. Mm. He says it's not a cho- necessarily just a choice. It's actually an obligation. So if you're listening to this right now, you're probably someone from a kind of developed country. You've got enough money to own some shit. If you go a little bit further from your own circle of where you are, there's probably someone out there who might be homeless in your own culture. You might go a bit further than that you're into another country now and then there's all of a sudden there's people who are hungry, don't have enough food or shelter or whatever. So there's people who just do not have the opportunities that you've been given in your life. Mm. And just because you've been granted these opportunities in life, you probably should take them just because no, there's people out there who do not even get the chances you take. So you need to take these opportunities. It's your obligation to and then take them to try and make the world better or have it have an impact on the world. Our in, um, interview with Kevin Kelly, he talked about this as well, realizing that, yes, we do have this opportunity, but it's more than an opportunity. It's an obligation. It's an obligation to do more, to not be a sheep, to get in the arena. Yeah, don't be a wimpy wimp. Don't be a wimpy wimp. Mate, the fourth lesson, delayed gratification. 
Now, almost everything gets better if you wait for it because rather than taking a, a small win right now, if you put that off, if you delay, you're going to get a much, 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 much bigger reward later on. Yes, and a good way of representing this is probably in the financial world, which does come a lot up in a lot of books and it's a lot more easy to visualize and recognize. It's the idea of compound interest. So if you invest in something now and you don't take all the gains and you don't get the credit card and splurge spending, but instead you save money and invest in the future, that compound interest is going to grow. So you're going to actually get more capital on your investment in the long run by just always playing this long, long game rather than playing the short game. Exactly, man. And beyond the, um, beyond the financial element, it's also like you might have a short-term satisfaction or a short-term win of you know going out and partying on a Saturday night and that writes off your Sunday because you're hungover. But instead of having that short-term win, if you delay that gratification, instead work on a, a side business, hmm. you're going to have a lot more happiness and success later on. And it's also like rather than having the instant gratification of eating a bar of chocolate, you're going to have a much um, better long-term happiness by being fit and healthy yeah, instead another, of having the short-term. Another book that covers this really well is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. He says it takes like three years before you start same results. So if you're doing all these choices for the long term, the future, you're not going to get the gains early, obviously, by definition. So if you keep playing the long game, over time, you're going to get the benefits of the compound effect where in three mm. years time, you're going to start hitting this exponential curve and, and getting exponentially good results. But if you're making the decisions for the short term, you're not going to get these long term benefits. And it's it's hard, man, because we are like programmed and a lot of the books we've read on like behavioral economics and mm. stuff. We're programmed to want to take the win right now rather than delay it and we don't think, we don't weigh up the benefits. So like say, thinking in bets, there was a story about the these pensions for the police force. They had the option to either take 40% and take it right now or they have their full pension if they wait 10 years to get it. And most people like took to have a lot, lot less taking it right now rather than delaying that the extra 10 years. And Dan Ariely told a cool story saying that if you ask people, okay, I'm going to give you one chocolate block right now or if you wait a week, I'll give you two. And most people take one right now <laughs> rather than waiting a week. But then he says if you think, okay, I can give you one chocolate block a year from now or, or I'll give you two chocolate blocks one year and one week from now and most people take the two and they realize that by waiting that extra week, they're getting a lot more benefits. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that if, you, if it's something way in the future, we're able to take into account. It's only one extra week, but I'm going to get twice as much. But he's saying if it's right now, we're thinking, oh, I'll just take it right now. I'm not going to wait a week. So you got to realize that you know, we're programmed to make the wrong decisions that aren't beneficial to us and realize that just wait that little bit extra and you're going to get a much better result. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But again, on that evolutionary kind of point of view, when it comes to food, we are evolved to eat the highest calorie foods. And it's what Chris Cress has spoke about when we spoke with him. You know, Because we're inclined to, when we're evolving, when we didn't have much food, like we do now at 7-Elevens, we'd see a big tree of high-calorie foods and we'd go, fuck yeah. And <laughs> you're going you're gonna to survive longer if you're the type of person who just pigs out on calories just because it's you know scarcity of it. And now we take those evolutionary traits into mm. today's world. We've got 7-Elevens, we've got donuts for two bucks, right? <laughs> and if we take those evolutionary impulses, we can just use our $50 we found on the street to buy 25 donuts. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're inclined to do. That's the easy way out. But... It's a short-term thing that's going to um, give you a kick out the ass long-term. And that's it. So in essence, we've got to forego instant gratification and instead achieve long-term satisfaction. So that 
instant gratification of our instant needs. We need to forego that in order to get long-term satisfaction of what we truly want. And the fifth one is we've labeled it the power of questions or in the importance of curiosity, but it's just how interesting some of the things there are in the world. Like some of the things you get in books is someone's whole life's work in one real niche area and especially when it comes to science and things like that, there's some absolutely freaking interesting things and interesting shit going down in the world. Definitely, man. I think that... So one book, that, in terms of the question aspect of it, the book called A More Beautiful Question, which I thought was okay at the time, but the further away I get from it, the more I think it was really good. And like Kevin Kelly talking about how, you know, machines are taking a lot of humans' jobs, but the last thing they're going to take is the ability to ask good questions. And so by asking better questions, you're going to get better answers. And as you say, there's like... You know, there's so much stuff going out there in the world, in history, in space, everywhere, that it's that ability to be genuinely curious and ask good questions is the only way that you're going to learn. Yeah, so interesting. And if you look at, say, Sapiens, which is the history of humankind, it's absolutely unbelievable if you think about a few hundred thousand years ago, there was 10 or so, (coughs) oh, I don't know. We'll go with 10 again. (laughs) I think think four. (laughs) 10 is a nice round number. But who knows, man? There could have been thousands. Could have been. <laughs> Let's go with thousands. <laughs> but there were shitloads of human species roaming yeah, around the world. About right? four-ish. But human, Homo sapiens, somehow, they made the jump to be these absolute dominant forces who we are today. Mm. And he, he says it's a whole bunch of different revolutions that we went through. But one of the most interesting for me was the cognitive revolution where we had some kind of mutation in our brain that allowed us to tell stories and then... If you look at, say, Dunbar's number where animals usually are capped at about 100 in their hierarchies. Yeah. 100. <laughs> mate, you and your fucking IQ are Sorry, starting man, to piss me off. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But then if you are, if you, you know, we, we could kind of transcend that and talk about mythology all of a sudden so we could have collective visions or interpretations mm. of the world. So we can now all of a sudden be in civilizations of 1.5 million rather than 150 and we could start talking and communicating together so like the an example of that is like you know normally if you if you want to go to war in the with Dunbar's number you're going to fight with someone who you know intimately you know who they are you know their story you know you can trust them so you and the the mate from down the road you can go to war with each other but he's saying that the ability to tell stories means that two people who've never met can still fight the same war to say oh we both believe in in Jesus we're fighting for Jesus hmm. and so they're able to fight together without that. Uh, personal trust but without the trust in the story itself and the stories manifest everywhere so if you look at things like the legal system corporations money they're not really universally physical elements of the universe they're absolutely fictional and made up entities and it only has so much power is because we believe in them i think money is probably one of the best stories like it's a piece of paper effectively but by realizing that if everyone believes that that piece of paper is worth something, then it becomes worth something. Yuval Noah Harari, the author, he says that's the best story ever written. Mm. He says religion, like a Christian and Muslim, can fight each other because they're religions. But money is a story that everyone believes. A Christian and a Muslim can both believe in money and then exchange it because that's the story we all believe in. Yeah, he says it like, say the story like, uh, like say a Muslim person, like the Muslim wants to go fight, they beat the... Um, the Christians and they, you know, take over the village and they go to the bank and there's these American dollars there 
and they realize that that's obviously not a Muslim thing, but they're not going to go just set fire to the American dollar nah. because they believe in that same story that this money is valuable, even though it's just pieces of paper. Mm. Mate, we, went, <laughs> we, veered, we veered quite a bit for that. I think that was in Sapiens, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. but we veered from there. <laughs> we went on a tangent, which is a bit of fun. <laughs> it is interesting stuff. That is infinite things in the world, man, that is interesting. And, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ones we could go yeah, through. Yeah, I like the question. I think the what you said at the very start is that realizing that Books are just a, a great way to tap into something that we don't know. Exactly. Nice summarize, you know, 200 pages, a week of your time to learn something that you had never even thought just of before. To, just to think that someone else out there has probably in academia studied it for decades and decades and dedicated all their time, energy and effort into it. And you can tap into it just for a small investment yeah. and a bit of your time. And it's, uh, it's a fucking sick trade-off. Sometimes they're not the best uh, written books, but that's probably an argument for another time, mate. Oh, mate, we should have a we could have a full episode <laughs> sparring on our definition of what a good book is. <laughs> mate, the sixth uh, lesson, which came up in uh, a hell of a lot of books, is just this, this bias for action. You know, it's nice to think about things. It's good to talk about things and like starting to plan things is a great start. But nothing happens until you actually fucking take action, start doing some stuff. Yes, he says, say if the war of art, for example, there's a really good quote of someone um, who asks him, you know, do you wait for inspiration before you start work? So like a kind of like an amateur asks this question, you know, and this is with the presupposition of that person believing that you have to have some external thing to hit you and all of a sudden you're inspired to start mm. working. That's the way an amateur thinks but... Uh, Stephen Pressfield in the book says the professional has his different answer. And in this case, the person said, no, I start work. Um, what did he say? I start work at not, I start writing every day at 9 a.m. But lucky inspiration hits me at 9 a.m. I yeah. fucking butchered that. <laughs> you absolutely butchered it. Can you it, save mate. it? Uh, well, just basically saying that you've got to start mate, working first. Quote. Yeah. Save the quote. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, do you wait for inspiration to hit you before you start work or do you start work? First, oh, he says, so yeah, I wait for inspiration to hit me. Luckily, it hits me at every every day at 9 a.m. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So every day, no matter what, the person's writing at that time. So exactly. It's not waiting. It's and just so it's like doing in, shit. In Lean In um, and other books talked about this as well, saying like this idea of fake it till you feel it. So it's easier to act your way into a better way of thinking than think your way into a better way of, of acting. So um, and Tony Robbins talks about that a lot, you know, change your state, take some action, um, have some motion in order to start thinking more positively. So you can't just, if you're sitting there in a slump on the couch, drinking a beer, eating a burger, watching TV, you can't think yourself into being like, ah, oh, I should stop doing this. I should get up and go do some work. That's thinking your way to that action is probably not going to work. But if you start acting, if you decide to jump up and do five star jumps, then you might realize that then your mindset changes to think, yeah, actually, this is better than what I was previously doing. So action generally comes first. When we both did stand-up comedy at the start of the year, we were both, we did a performance, we did a course, and then the performance was in front of like 50 or 60 people. Mm. Our family, our girlfriends were there and the whole lot. Mate, we were both absolutely shitting ourselves. If we, if our body showed exactly what we're feeling inside, we'd be slouched down, we'd be shaking our hands, we'd be nervous. But because we read Tony Robbins, we were both walking around yeah. over-exaggerating with our chests out as yeah. if we were the most confident motherfucker <laughs> on the planet, even though we weren't. But that's the whole idea. Just because you get your body in that state position, you're actually going to follow in that way. And we both actually did pretty all right on the end. I think so too, man. And to, go even, to go even further than that, if, you, if we were thinking, if we let our thoughts control our actions, there was no fucking way we were getting on that stage because oh. we were both shitting ourselves. 
and just seeing we we're going to embarrass ourselves and everything about it. And there was no way we we're going to yeah, do it. Your girlfriends, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But once you, if you take that action first, you step up on stage, then initially the those initial fears start to dissipate, and then you just realize actually this is going all right. Mm. And another one, uh, even in like in search for excellence, they uh, examined all these excellent companies um, and a lot of shit companies. And they realized the excellent ones, the ones that didn't just have eight meetings a day and 10 strategy mm. sessions and planning sessions, the best companies were the ones that actually took some fucking action. <laughs> it makes sense, man, doesn't it? I don't think <laughs> many people apply that. If you look at most corporations, it's so freaking bureaucratic. It makes you vomit. But <laughs> I think that's the norm when it comes to big corporations. It's, I used to work at one of them and I remember one bloke, he was probably the busiest person in the office. Oh, this is a little bit off track, but I just remember him... <laughs> He'd seem to be taking 12 shits a day or something because he didn't do anything. But that's what people do. They just go around being busy, being busy, and they actually yeah. just don't even do anything. Man, I used to um, take a lot of shits. Not actual shits, but just spend a lot of time sitting on the dunny. You used to have an app. Phone. I used to have an app you called to... like Toilet Time or something. And it like converted the <laughs> converted the time. Like when you go to the toilet, sit down, hit start, and then you hit stop. And it converted the amount of minutes you spend on the toilets to the, the amount of money, like per, <laughs> per hour money. Mate, that's an absolute. So, if anyone out there absolutely hates their boss, <laughs> download that app now and um, Mate, roar was, them for some cash. I was spending a lot of time on the toilet. They must have thought I oh, just ate lots of sloppy curries every night or something. But no, just, just no one's on here, just... mate, because everyone's on the same boat there. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> just doesn't they do anything anyway. How, they were so they were just jealous, mate. How is this guy getting away with it? That's a classic bank culture there for you. <laughs> Mate, so I think there's six sort of pretty um, pretty broad ideas. The next four are probably a bit more specific to, to different areas. So one that we really like is this idea of minimum bets um, and viewing life as a series of bets. We can never know the answer. We can never know what the best decision is, and so we've got to test it. Yes, yeah, so there's with any kind of venture that you go on, there's going to be some things that are facts and then also some things that are just leap of faith assumptions so say if you've got an example of someone who wants to be a yoga teacher or something, you know, one fact might be, hey, there's uh, 100,000 people enjoy yoga in Melbourne. Yep, that's a fact about your business. You can mm-hmm. lay in your case. Yep. But then there's also leap of faith assumptions and that might be something like out of that 100,000, there's going to be 50 people who every Saturday are going to sign up for this class. Mm. So that's just an assumption. And if you don't go down the minimal viable product kind of route, with that leap of faith assumption, you might go out there and go, oh, yeah, there's going to be so many people enjoying my product. So you might go out and spend 100 grand, buy a yoga studio, do a whole year in planning and investing for this big business you've got going down. Mm. But on the other side of things, if you use the minimal viable product route, and this is where this is so valuable, is you want to do the absolute bare minimum investment to just test that leap of faith assumption. So hang on, is there actually 50 people who are going to enjoy my yoga product? And what is the absolute minimum I can invest? And you can almost guarantee it's not investing in a $100,000 yoga studio. Yeah. There might be some real simple, simple things you can do to test that. Yeah. It might be you just go to someone else who's already got a studio and say, hey, can I do one half-hour class each week? And man, if it doesn't work out, you it's not a bad thing. That's yeah amazing thing that you're finding this information that you got a piece of shit business idea (laughs) and it's only cost you 300 bucks in two weekends exactly but if you went down the other route you spent a whole year you spent 100 grand and then you've lost your house you've lost your house you divorced your wife's divorced (laughs) (laughs) 
Mate, there's a, another it's book good. I really liked, uh, The Click Moment, saying that you know you never really know what idea or what business is going to work. So you need to try a few different things, place a few different bets. And so he says that you know what you should be doing is placing a couple of purposeful bets uh, and placing these bets in a few different areas before you actually commit to something. And when something starts to show a bit of positive signs, then you double down. And I think it's good to combine those two ideas of the bets uh, with the minimum viable product. So you should be placing minimum bets. So realize that a bet, you're not going all in on the first hand. So it's not like, as you say, if you think, oh, I've got the best idea, I'm going to make a sick yoga studio. Going all in would be you know, buying a building in the middle of the city and, and then trying to do it up and you spend half a mil. And that's going all in. Hmm. Whereas we said, you need to place this minimum bet first to test those ideas. So realizing that, a minimum bet, if it doesn't work, that's probably a good thing onto the next minimum bet and make sure you still got a bit of bankroll for those next bets. And tapping into that book again, Thinking in Bets, she says in the book, Annie Jerkies, she says the world is a lot more like poker than it is chess. Hmm. So with poker, the whole thing's uncertain. You don't know what card's going to come out next. You don't know how good, you might think your hand's good, but in the long run, the hand might be a piece of shit compared to chess where every whatever position you are in chess, there's always the right kind of move there's computationally a good move and a, and you know a less uncertainty into that so because the world is so uncertain out there you need to place a whole bunch of minimum bets and then because the world's uncertain who knows which bets can actually yep. work and then because you've spread your bets over a certain bunch of different things once the thing starts going down starts to get some traction you kind of double down on that bet go hard on that one and that's your and that's your yep. dip if you want to segue to that for sure uh dip i almost segue to the dip <laughs> the other thing i wanted to say it's not just money as well it's also like time and energy so this minimum viable product it's not just putting up a little piece of shit you have to do something that represents the whole idea but is the basic form possible so the least amount of time the least amount of energy the least amount of money to get something out there into the world and test it and the issue is like if we spend too much time or energy or money we get sucked into this sunk cost fallacy thinking that i've already i've already invested 10 grand and and four months of my time this has to work so you want to be doing the absolute minimum possible so that you don't get uh pot committed Mm. to throw another poker analogy and as you say matt the dip. The dip, yeah. So combining these two ideas. So the dip is this whole idea of when you when you start something. So you get to visualize this. So when you first start something, and we'll use an example of trying to write a book, which is mm-hmm. a fucking quite a hard thing to do. When you start, you tell someone, hey, I'm writing a book. So you have these initial wins of starting a project. Yeah, so you might get people pat you on the back saying, good job, that's awesome, you're going to write a book. And you might write your first page and that's a little win in itself. But all of a sudden, when you start... Uh, getting to it so you got these early wins and then between now and the very end of the product there's a huge long slog between starting something and finishing something yeah and that dip that big long flat lull where increased effort doesn't lead to increased rewards it's just flat the whole way along but the only way to get to the end is to keep putting in that effort and get to the other end and it's only at the very end you see this exponential increase in rewards where at the very end, that's when you become you know, a published author with a book in your hands. And you think the, the dip is a really bad thing. So there's a, a quote that came up in Pressfield's book again. He says, the enemy is a good teacher. Mm. It's the same kind of thing. Like the dip might be your absolute enemy and it might seem like that, but it's actually your best friend because it's the dip where everyone drops off and everyone falls off, right? And this is the thing that makes the thing you're going for valuable in the first place. So because everyone's dropping off, 
the thing you're going for, like being an author, is all of a sudden really scarce and extremely valuable. So the dip is a good thing. You just need to push through the dip a bit better than everyone else. For sure. If it was easy to do and everyone could do it, then it wouldn't be worth it. If everyone could write and publish a book and they've got it in their hands, it's almost not worth doing it. But it's only because so many people try and so many people quit that it becomes valuable to get to the other side. So, yeah, so your dip's your hardcore investment. So we want to be linking it back again to our minimum bet kind of thing. We want to be sure that our bet's actually worth putting our huge hardcore decision to this is our thing we're going for and we're going to go like a fuck. We're playing the long game here. We're going to go through the dip to get this one. Yeah, Seth's quote is quit the wrong stuff, stick with the right stuff, have the guts to do one or the other. So he says that the best time to quit is at the very start. Quitting in the middle of the dip is the absolute worst possible thing you can do. So that's where these bets come in. You've got to place a bunch of bets so you can quit before you actually get into the dip. And then once you realize, okay, this is the thing, this is a dip I'm going to embrace, that's when you've got to stick to it mm. and see it all the way through to the other end. And we probably should say this is a bit of our salt and pepper. We're, we're kind of putting bridges in between a whole bunch of different books at yeah. the same time, which we think logically makes sense, you know, but... Yeah. But um, I think it's a way of tying things I think so together. For sure, man. Because this is, is this thing we spoke about the other day off air, and it's this kind of idea of a dichotomy. So some books will be true, and then they'll spell something out as this is the absolute way it is, mm-hmm. and you go, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's fantastic, I love that. Oh, that's, that's perfect, that's spot on. But then you read another book which completely and one hundred percent contradicts it, and it seems equally true. So both books are equally true, and they're mm. talking about different things, and and what, explain the false dichotomy thing again, <laughs> mate, the anyway, false, mate. mate. The false dichotomy is just thinking that there's those two things and only one of them is is correct. And that's it's a, a dichotomy in that there's two things and it's false in that there's only one right answer. So you've got to realize that this false dichotomy means there's a bit of gray in between. It's not black or white. There's always a bit of middle ground where they're probably both a little bit right. Mm, and that's probably where it's important to read a lot of books to get a whole different yeah. perspective. And you realize that not every book is it's absolutely not the Bible where it's everything's perfect. Some things do contradict in different circumstances. Definitely. Matt, I'll just uh, clarify. You said that we talked about it off air. We actually talked about it on air, but we weren't recording. <laughs> we did a 30-minute episode, got to the end and realized that we fucked up the recording. The recording, so yeah, it was meant to all, be on air. Oh, <laughs> we got all this new audio equipment. And right now, we're recording with the... Um, we went back to the old stuff, back to the just, old to shit. Sure. <laughs> just to make even sure. Though, even though the new shit was a, was a serious investment. It's good. We just fucked it up, so that bit got missed. Uh. <laughs> Mate, the eighth lesson that was a long lesson that one but the eighth lesson we did a whole bunch of books on uh you know effectiveness efficiency time management so books like the effective executive essentialism the one thing getting things done for our work week and i I reckon this is probably some of the best advice on time management yes absolutely and it's all about effectiveness and one book that really covered this well is this essentialism so you know you've got only a limited amount of time and energy and things you can invest into something and say if you've got multiple and multiple projects and say tens of priorities or something, you're going to be going a millimeter direction in a million different directions or something, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. But if you think about a circle with 10 arrows going in all different directions, the whole circle doesn't really get... You don't get that far, do you? Don't get that far. Yeah. But if you pulled all the, those arrows, kind of cumulatively put them into the one thing, so you're prioritizing to the one actual thing that's important, you can get very, very far with it. Yeah. So the book is all about saying no to the things that don't matter. Exactly. So you say no to, as you say, if you've got 10 things that you spend 10% of your time on, none of them are going to be very good. 
But if you pick one of those and put 100% of your effort into it, it's going to be much better. So you got to say no to all the little stuff in order to say one big yes. And like another book, The, the One Thing, they talk about having this long-term one thing that's your overarching purpose and then the short-term one thing to do right now. So what's the very next thing you do? And in order to pick that one thing, it's something that's like either makes everything else easier or unnecessary. Yes, that's the big question from that book. It's a huge takeaway. You could ask yourself, what's the one thing I can do that makes everything else easier or unnecessary? And if you break it down, it might just be a 30-minute task of your day, which has got the highest leverage and flow and effect to make everything else easier that you're trying to uh, achieve in your life. If you've got 100 things on your to-do list and you realize that picking one of them can knock off 10 others that's obviously the one thing to do first it's probably the most difficult mentally and you know back to we've mentioned press fields a fair bit again but it's it was probably the most recent book it's the most and recent book, book and too. it's a good book but it's probably that thing where you've experienced most resistance to which is going to have the highest leverage it's mm. going to be the most difficult thing like a a really difficult phone call or a difficult action or something like that Mate, a bit of a bit of a, a scattergun here a few other time management tips i like the in getting things done the two minute rule Realizing that if something takes two minutes or less, it's easier to just do it than to plan it and keep thinking about it to do it later. So if it's two minutes or less, just fucking do it. Um, the, another big one actually that comes across in a hell of a lot of books is this 80-20 rule. So this Pareto principle that generally 80% of outputs come from 20% of inputs. So if you can work out from all the tasks that you have to do, 80% of your results will come from 20% of those tasks. So it's mm. all about finding what's that key 20% and focusing in on that. Mm. And with that, man, busyness doesn't equal importance. So if you're doing the, the top 20 things that are important, you're probably not going to be that busy, but you're going to be much more effective. Yes. Whereas the other people, and this is so fucking common, it pisses me off, especially <laughs> in big corporate again, it's everyone actually does equate busyness with importance. Mm. It's like, hey, mate, how you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm busy, so fucking busy. <laughs> and they <laughs> scuffle their face or something. And... They actually genuinely think that being busy means they're important. And I think if you're one of those people, you got to cut that out because you're yeah. going to miss all of life and at the same time, the worst part, um, you're not going to get be very effective either. Man, another big key, I think, is the difference between efficiency and effectiveness in that efficiency is doing things right, doing things quickly, doing things with the least effort and time and energy as possible. So realizing the best ways to do something. But I think a more important thing is effectiveness, which is choosing the right things to begin with so that effectiveness should be the first step that's finding the 20 percent. that's saying no to everything else being effective doing the right things first once you've got that effectiveness then you can work on the efficiency of doing those things right mm. but it's effectiveness comes first absolutely and it's kind of liberating man for sure i think you can you can probably you don't have to be busy i think when i first started reading books man personally i thought i'm not doing enough i'm not doing enough so then i just naturally filled all my time with shit yeah. Um, my whole calendar was full with trying to do stuff and be busy but I was really just going around just doing jack shit definitely you can actually enjoy your life and do things you enjoy as long as the time when you are working if you're doing the highest leverage actions you can you can go out there and just have a fun fun day <laughs> <laughs> definitely man do what you gotta do and then the rest do of the time is yours exactly Number nine lesson, listen before you talk. It's come up in a, a hell of a lot of books and it's something that so sounds so common sense but people aren't doing. So as seven habits of highly effective people would say, seek first to understand 
and then to be understood. Most people just want to be understood. They want to just say what they want to say. So they're always, whenever they're in a conversation, they're not actually listening. They're just thinking, what am I going to say next? Which is the worst thing you can do. You need to properly listen, be empathic and understand first from the other person's point of view. I think the evolutionary default is the first thing you said. So where you just, until you become conscious of it, Mm. I think you can run on the programming that whenever you're speaking to someone, you're not really listening to what they say. You just, oh, what am I saying next? What am I saying next? And try and butt in. Whereas he kind of just flips that on his head. You know, everyone's greatest desire in their life is to feel important. So if you Mm. let someone feel they've been listened to empathetically and understood, then that person's going to go out and feel important and then you're actually going to um, develop a, a real relationship and they're going to think you... You have stories where the person who doesn't even say jack shit at a dinner party and you just listen to the person is the most easy and most sociable person in yeah. the fucking world even though he hasn't even said anything. Yeah, exactly. It comes up a lot in How to Win Friends and Influence People and I think it might have come up in 12 Rules for Life. I might be blending the two together because we read them sort of close together but everyone, you've got to realize that everybody you meet everyone you know is going to be better than you at something and so that's what you can learn from them so by actually wanting to learn from them and wanting to listen and wanting to understand you can actually improve yourself by listening to others not just talking shit the whole time yeah was that in 12 rules it was i forget the exact rule but it, it definitely has come about a bit so if that's your default belief every every single person you come across there's going to be value for you to get from that interaction mm-hmm. Even if it's a bum on the street, they've probably had experiences that you could not even imagine. Yeah. So if you approach them and try and listen to them and go, fuck, you've had a tough life and you can actually get something from them, they've learned, you know what I mean? So no yeah. matter who it is, um, every interaction you approach, you'll probably approach it differently. Matt, I just had a, something just came into the, the head uh, that I think is, uh, applies to this in that people, if people just give advice and say, you should do this, you're almost never going to listen to it. If it's just generic advice you won't take it on board but if someone gives you the time of day they actually listen to you they try to understand your point of view and they take that on board first and then they say hey you know what this might be a good idea for you to try that's advice you might actually take because it feels personalized you feel heard you feel understood and you feel like they're actually giving you personalized advice directed to you not just a blanket here go do this which Mm. which is just going to be water off a duck's back but if someone actually listens to you first and then gives you personalized advice, that's something that you might actually do. Yeah. On the surface, man, we've talked about how to win friends and influence people. It seems like it's a book all about me, 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 but it's really Mm. about the other person Mm. and being empathetic. And if you really listen and understand the other person first, you can communicate through their values. And because you're doing the things that they want to do, you can actually get the things you want. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And if you're tactical about it, you're not being sincere and genuine, then it's not going to work. So you need to be sincere about this as well. Definitely, man. The final number 10 lesson, which I think is a quote from a specific book, but it has actually come up in a lot of different places in this idea of you're either remarkable or you're invisible. So there was a quote from Seth Godin's Purple Cow, but I think it also applies to not only marketing and business, but also to your career, also to your personal relationships, also to like the power of moments came up as well. And like, it's either remarkable or it's invisible. Yes, it's the 48 and in the 48 laws of power because mm. it just pops up in the head. It's it not enough here, but I forget the exact law. But the worst thing you can do is just be the person that no one sees. If just you're just average a quiet, yeah. average person in the background, you're really, you're really nothing. You're invisible mm. to the world. So 
in 48 Laws of Power, which is a dark book, he says you're better off being the person, you know, that say for the staff party, absolutely blind drunk, vomited on the boss. You're actually better off being that person than... In some regard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the invisible person because people yeah. actually be talking about you and then your kind of reputation will be, at least be out there and known mm. compared to the, the wimpy person who's just nothing. Yeah, that's... um. That's one that's way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> mate, but it's also Probably like... pulled it too extreme yeah. there, mate. <laughs> like, uh, so good they can't ignore you. Uh, in terms of career advice, one end of the scale uh, is that you're the person who there's, you know, 10 tasks that need to be done. You just follow the process and you do them and you just do the bare minimum. You do the quiet stuff. You just do what needs to be done. That's not going to be talked about. That's not going to be remembered. If you're someone who goes and creates a new project or a new... Um, signs a new client to the business or does something different, does something remarkable, that's what people talk about. Even if nothing else matters, um, they're not going to remember the dude who just typed away and did the process. Mm. They're going to remember the dude who went out there and did some remarkable shit. Yeah. It comes up in Purple Cow, which it, it can be in the, you can define it in the context of, say, a new business idea but also your own career. Whereas if you're just a brown cow... No mm. one's going to remark, oh, it's a brown cow. You go, but if you saw a purple cow, you'd actually remark to yeah. people and it's kind of like word of mouth advertising. People are going to talk about purple cows. So you'd ask yourself with your new business idea, what thing or what element of this product or whatever is the purple cow or is going to be thing that's going to be remarked upon by other people? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it came up in Perennial Seller as well uh, and purple cow that these word of mouth advertising is the absolute best possible advertising you can go out there and do gimmicks and spend heaps of money on advertising but it really doesn't matter unless you've got something that's really really good that's worth talking about and seth godin calls it you know sneezing people telling other people the only time people are going to sneeze is if it is remarkable they're not going to talk about something that's unremarkable um, because by definition you know it needs to be remarked upon it needs to be remarkable for someone to remark about it banged with about 12 remarks but yeah you're the remarkable or you're invisible and mate i liked how it came up in the power of moments as well so he talks about you know if you spent a whole day at disneyland or he says that he for the interview with dan heath he talked about how he drove six hours to see this eclipse you know you forget about all the invisible shit all the time he spent standing in line all the time he spent sitting in traffic that stuff's forgotten that's invisible the only stuff that you remember is the peak and the end. So that's the remarkable stuff. So, you know, the time where, you know, you got to the top of the roller coaster, you were shitting yourself and then you went down the other end of the roller coaster, that's remarkable stuff. Mm. Or the time where just as the moon went across in front of the sun and the whole world went black for three seconds, that's remarkable shit. Mm. And that's, you know, that's how your career is going to grow. It's how your business is going to grow is something through word of mouth and not paid advertising as much, so... Man, that's 10, 10, 10 lessons. Big lessons, 10 biggies. Pretty, Ooh. As you said, pretty broad uh, across all the different 100 books that we've read, different types of books, different areas. Um, we just wanted to pull out what we thought were some of the coolest lessons over this last 100 books that we've read. Mm. And um, yeah, if you guys like this format, uh, please, please give us feedback because this is going to be something that could be ongoing for the feed mm. in the future. Um, we're obviously very careful with what we put out in the feed. We don't want to put out crap. There's a lot of podcasts who do, you know, 
Tim Tam Tuesdays and <laughs> Motivation thong, Monday, motivation, Feedback Friday. Feedback Tuesday. <laughs> so we don't want to be one of those. And they just purely do that just to get their downloads up, I think, just so they can sell more to our advertisers. So we don't want to go down that path. We want to only have good shit in our feed. So if exactly. you give us feedback, this is something you want, then and if it's good enough for the feed, we'll chuck it in. As you said, this was like 10 broad lessons. We thought, you know, we could also do, you know, a business-specific episode and a marketing-specific episode and yeah, a spirituality. Or yeah. there's, there's a whole bunch of different mashups I think we could do, right? Yeah, but only if it's valuable, only if it's worthwhile to you guys. So it's definitely getting in touch with us and we think. Yeah.